This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. It's been a bit of a Ponzi scheme for a long time. It's all been on the greater, you know, predicated on the greater full theory that, you know, growth and these tech companies are going to take over the world and they're going to be able to grow at insane rates forever. But the reality is there's going to be no freaking growth, right, for the next few years. The world is not growing. It's going to contract. Equity I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? Very good, Bryce. You forgot your name there. I realized that I've been putting the disclaimer in all GSI episodes, but not Equity Mates. Right. So, well, do you want to just give it to us now? Sure. So here's the disclaimer. While we are licensed, <laughs> we are not aware of your personal circumstances. All information on this podcast is education and entertainment purposes only. Any advice is general advice. And what's our AFSL number? 540697. Wow. <laughs> respect. <laughs> Next question. Anyway, we are here, Ren, to introduce our, uh, our guest for today. The one and only Chris Joy, mm. co-founder and portfolio manager at Coolabar Capital and contributing editor at the AFR. And uh, he is a prolific writer on, on markets and specifically the housing market uh, here in Australia has made some very bold calls. So we're super excited to have him on today. Yeah. In October 2021, in the midst of uh, the euphoria that was the ho- Australian housing market at that time, uh, he made the call that we're going to see a 15 to 25% correction, mm. which Australia is now tracking towards. But at the time, in the era of cheap money, um, he was very contrarian. Uh, but it was a great time to get Chris on because he's been really focused on... So he mainly invests in bonds, in yeah. fixed income. And obviously this banking crisis that we're seeing at the moment is very focused on the bond market. Silicon Valley Bank bought a lot of long-term fixed income investments and then their depositors tried to pull their money out and that created a problem for them. And similarly, some of the other US banks that we're seeing struggling at the moment are in similar predicament. So it's certainly the time to get a bond market expert on to help us understand it. And Chris uh, did that. Mm. This is a pretty jargon-heavy filled conversation. So just fair warning if you're new to investing some of these concepts may go over your head but i think it's worth sticking it out because some of the stuff he told us was fascinating and some of the calls he made including that the stock market's been a ponzi scheme (laughs) yeah (laughs) were pretty big some big calls in there yeah so he starts by discussing how overnight he was trying to trade a hundred million dollars of of UBS bonds and for context he traded about 86 billion dollars worth of bonds last year so massive bond trader but stick with us through the opening part of the conversation because then we get to a little bit more of a macro discussion around interest rates and housing market and and what's going on with uh SVB Silicon Valley Bank so some really interesting commentary from uh from Chris in in the latter half of the interview and then after the break we get into the Australian property market. That's it. He made the call in 2021, we're going to see a 15 to 25% decline. And we wanted to take his temperature on where to next. No better expert to join us. It is our pleasure to welcome to the Equimate studio, Chris Joy. Chris, welcome. Thanks, boys, for having me. I, uh, I enjoyed the first 
iteration and uh, it's definitely fun to re-engage and what a time. <laughs> Just as a little aside, last night I tried to buy $100 million of UBS senior bonds, right? And these were bonds that were being completely trashed in the market. Uh, so they're spread. A senior bond's you know, generally a very safe bond mm. and they're A-rated you know, highly rated. The, the deal with Credit Suisse, you know, people have probably heard about UBS buying Credit Suisse, but it's a very sweet deal for UBS. The Swiss government is taking up to $9 billion of potential future losses and providing them with a super cheap $100 billion, uh, uh, Swiss franc loan. So, you know, it's all interesting. And what's particularly interesting is that banks globally have been selling UBS bonds over the last week and the spread's moved about 110 basis points wider, which is, for an A-rated bond, you know, extremely unusual and they look crazy cheap. So I went to my traders in London last night and said, okay, let's pick up 100 million bucks of them. And there was basically no offer in the street. <laughs> Nobody wow. had them, wow. which is kind of weird. Because if you'd said to me, okay, you've got UBS bonds, they've moved 110 basis points in a day, maybe 150 to 200 over the last few weeks. Uh, you know, what, what sort of inventory would you expect in the street? Uh, I would say at least $500 million to a $1 billion of these bonds should have been available. And we could find only 8 million euros, right? Oh. There was nothing. And the whole street was short. So they were short selling the bonds. And when we came in to buy, because <laughs> we are a little bit of a gorilla, the whole street went bid, right? And what that means is every bank in the world was trying to buy them. There was literally no inventory. And the, the tell in this, and the reason, I know this sounds slightly inside baseball, but bonds rule the world in many respects. Um, you know, risk-free rates are incredibly important. <laughs> Borrowing costs are very important, and that's all expressed through the bond market. But the tell in this that's fascinating for me, guys, is it demonstrated to me last night that this was a speculative attack, right? So the short sellers have been attacking Credit Suisse and UBS, and when you looked into the whites of their eyes, they folded. As in, you know, these the, last night in the European session, again, UBS bonds literally went 110 basis points. What I've never seen that happen before in a single session for a, a highly rated bank. And there should have been a billion dollars of stock available to buy, and there was nada, nothing. Mm-hmm. And Credit Suisse was a basket case. Like we had been short selling Credit Suisse bonds in 2022, and I'd been telling my clients to get out of Credit Suisse in February 2021, right? So we identified years ago that Credit Suisse was an absolute basket case. You know, it was always uh, A, destined to have problems, but B, you know, experiencing what appeared to be an ineluctable decline. Um, But having said that, you know, it was a global bank. Uh, It did have government guaranteed deposits. Uh, It didn't have – what's really interesting about Credit Suisse was – it didn't have huge credit losses on its balance sheet in the sense that it wasn't like a, a, a subprime bank that you know we saw in you know 2008 that was blowing up. Mm. This wasn't a credit event. It was truly and exclusively a crisis of confidence. Mm. And a lot of our trading counterparties in Europe uh, basically told us that they thought Credit Suisse was an engineered short-selling slash hedge fund attack. Even though Credit Suisse, uh, according to our trading relationships, had actually been a hedge fund hotel, quote unquote, that were most hedge funds were long Credit Suisse, not short. But if you think about what triggered the collapse of Credit Suisse, it was a Saudi national simply saying, who, who owns, you know, the Saudi, one of the Saudi banks owns a big chunk of Credit Suisse, nine point something percent. And he simply repeated a statement he said previously 
which was for regulatory reasons, we can't buy more than that. Mm. That one state, just a repetition of what he said in the past, triggered, I think, Credit Suisse's shares on that day fell 30%. Yeah. Right? So it was kind of a bit of a fabrication that was, and a lot of the traders have been incredibly critical of the mainstream reporting on Credit Suisse, which they think have been manipulated by a very small number of short sellers. Mm. Um, so, you know, Credit Suisse is, a, I think, a bad bank. It's not a great bank. Probably deserved to you know, be absorbed by some sort of institution. But it comes back to the point that the genesis of all of this is a bank none of us have ever heard of, Silicon Valley Bank. Yes. Um, that was uh, absolutely a bank that deserved to die. Absolutely, we can talk about this later. It you know, had fundamental uh, problems, but the, the collapse of one you know, relatively small US bank has triggered a crisis of confidence Globally, the other just quick, I know I'm doing a lot of talking here, guys, but one other quick point I want to make uh, in case I forget it is I think it's fascinating to see Bitcoin rally. I know there'll be a lot of crypto junkies listening to this because I've been critical of crypto since, <laughs> yeah. since December 2021 when uh, I first wrote about crypto and basically said I thought this is a Ponzi scam and it had collapsed you know, 70, 80%. But the interesting thing is the crypto crowd, you've seen Bitcoin jump from 19,000 US to 28,000 US. Now, my contention is nobody who is outside of crypto is allocating any money to crypto right now. Mm. Everyone's seen crypto collapse. Everyone's seen the exchanges collapse, the lenders collapse, the crypto fund managers collapse. You know, freaking hell, two US banks that were being morphed into crypto banks, namely Silvergate and Signature, they collapsed. (laughs) So you had traditional banks trying to become crypto banks and because of how toxic crypto is, they blew up. The highly zealous, almost ideological uh, crypto crowd have bid up crypto, specifically Bitcoin, on the basis that, oh, look at the, you know, bank, we told you banks that we're, yeah. we're fragile, <laughs> banks are going to fail. And we told you you needed an alternative to bank cash. You needed uh, a digital alternative uh, to conventional money. But what's the, what is the fascinating thing about all this for me, boys, is that not one US depositor, not one European depositor has lost a single cent of money. Mm. Governments have completely guaranteed all bank deposits. So despite the, the huge turbulence, the massive eruptions, you know, despite the fact we've seen Signature Silicon Valley uh, and Silvergate, three US banks collapse, we've seen Credit Suisse being bought. All the depositors haven't lost a single cent. Now, if you look at crypto, well, most people who are, you know, invested in crypto a, a year or two ago are down 70 80%. So I don't think this is a use case for crypto at all. In fact, I just think this reinforces the safety of conventional cash and bank deposits because we've seen unlimited, unconditional government guarantees rolled out by the US government. So with that, I'll stop, boys, and you can hammer me with questions. That was my opening <laughs> No, I love it. I love it. There's so much to unpack there. Uh, I think the... The Bitcoin side of it is just a classic case of confirmation bias. You know, if you see Bitcoin as the solution, you're going to see it as a solution to whatever the world throws at you. But uh, let's let's hold on Silicon Valley Bank and uh, sort of where we are with this banking crisis because uh, you wrote a piece, uh, Why Silicon Valley Bank Died, which uh, we saw getting shared around Twitter and getting um, a lot of... I guess, uh, applause from the FinTwit community. So I would love to get your thoughts on Silicon Valley Bank. We've also seen you writing about, you know, zombie companies and what's going to happen next. And that's probably the more interesting part of the conversation at this point. So let's start with what happened and then uh, move to your view of sort of what happens next. Let's start with Silicon Valley Bank. You need to understand the idiosyncratic 
uh, contours of the US banking system before you jump into SVB. So before the GFC in 2008, there were, I think, more than 8,500 US banks. Uh, the US banking system is really unusual. Most banking systems around the world have a very small number of national champions. It's inherently oligopolistic. Now look at Australia. Four banks control circa 85% of the market. In the US, because of its federated structure, you've always had this massively fractured and decentralized banking system that's also inherently fragile. So US bank failures are really common. Since 2001, on average, 25 US banks have died every year. Since 2012, on average, seven US banks have died every year. And they're very kind of typically similar to Silicon Valley Bank, or what I call SVB. Uh, they tend to be small, tend to be very regional. They tend to be very uh, industry concentrated. And as a result, if something goes wrong in that region or industry, they tend to blow up. Now, depositors is about out because the US has a government guarantee of deposits, but the bank kind of disappears. Uh, SVB, I think, was just an extension of that. SVP, it is kind of almost endlessly fascinating to think about it because of just the second and third order dynamics. But SVB was geographically focused on Silicon Valley. Almost 100% of its deposits came from tech. All of its loans went to tech, and it was enormously telescoped on tech. And that was the, the first order problem. The reason Silicon Valley Bank failed is when the Fed raised rates, as we argued they would aggressively, back in late 2021 when the Fed cash rate was near zero, we argued they'd lift above 3% and the US 10-year government bond yield would rise above 3.2%. And that was a, a very contrarian view. In December 21, the bond market was saying, the Fed would not lift its cash rate above 1%. And we were saying they'd go more for three. And the 10-year US bond yield was only one. And, and so that meant we were very negative on fixed rate bonds or what is known as duration. But we're also very negative on credit spreads. And we were very negative on growth. So in January 22, last year, we argued the US would go into recession because of these rate hikes. And we've argued consistently that you'll see a big default cycle. And that's kind of what played out with SVB. So with SVB... Between January 22 and March this year, it lost 30 billion of deposits. And the reason it lost deposits was the tech venture funds, which were amongst its biggest depositors, those guys were losing money and not raising new money. So they were pulling cash. And then the tech companies that used SVB were burning through their cash. So the first problem was they were losing deposits. Their loan book was ostensibly okay, but there was a second problem. And so this was a second order problem. And that was that basically SVB was run in a really reckless and irresponsible way. And it's complex because normally what a bank does is it takes in deposits and makes loans with all of those deposits. SVB didn't do that. They had 173 billion of deposits and they only made about 74 billion of loans. And so that left them with about 100 billion. They actually had about 100 and uh, 20 billion of kind of free uh, capital, and they put that money in super superficially safe assets. So about um, off the top of my head, about circa 24 billion went into U.S. government and foreign government bonds, so safe and liquid assets. And they put in another, I think, uh, 90 to 95 billion in residential mortgage-backed securities and commercial property mortgage-backed securities. Again, super superficially safe, definitely liquid. Uh, and if you looked at that balance sheet, you said, okay, they've got 173 billion in deposits. They've made 74 billion in loans. 
and they've put the the rest in <clears throat> superficially safe bonds, you say, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. The first order problem, of course, is that they're 100% tech dependent. They had no diversification geographically or from an industry perspective. The second problem is this, and this is the complex part. Normally, when a bank takes in our deposits or we're lending money to the bank, the, when we when we put money in a deposit, uh, most of the time it's at call, and that means the bank has what is called a short-term interest rate uh, liability. So a on a bank's balance sheet, a deposit is called a liability, and when a bank makes a loan, uh, that's an asset for the bank. We think of it the other way around because we look at it from our perspective. For us, the loan, when we take out a home loan, that's our liability, and when we put money in a deposit, that's our asset, but for the bank, it's the other way around. Anyway, deposits are, you know, most deposits are at call, and what that means is if the RBA cash rate goes up and down, the bank has to pay us the interest rate that goes up and down. So what banks do in Australia is when they make 30-year home loans, they always hedge the home loan risk back such that the home loan interest rate risk matches the deposit risk. Basically, in simple terms, they want a floating rate interest rate profile. If you take out a five-year fixed rate home loan, that's a fixed rate profile. If you take a, a variable rate home loan, that's floating rate. Mm-hmm. And a central mission for banks is to ensure that the interest rate risk on their deposits matches the interest rate risk on their loans. Now, all banks do that generally. Uh, It just so happened that Silicon Valley Bank decided they wouldn't do that. So they didn't hedge anything at all. And what that meant was they had roughly, um, let's call it 100 to 120 billion in bonds, and the average maturity was about 6.2 years. And all those bonds were fixed rate, they weren't floating rate, and then they had all these at-call deposits that were floating rate. And what they should have done, which is very easy to do, is just with you know basically a click of your fingers, you hedge the bonds to match the interest rate risk of your deposits. But they didn't do that. Why didn't they do that? Well, because if you hedge it, you reduce the interest rate you earn. Mm. Because if you have a, a 6.2-year fixed rate bond, you're going to earn generally more interest than if you have an at-call deposit. So Silicon Valley Bank was being cheeky, and they thought, you know what? And, and you've got to ask yourself, why would they have done this? And I think the reason they did this was – they had the richest people in the world depositing with them. The average value of their deposits was 4.7 million US. Whoa. Nine, 91% of their deposits were above the 250K US government guarantee threshold. All the, you know, Everyone in the tech world deposited with them or borrowed from them. So they were sort of sitting back there you know, in late 21 thinking, hey, tech's going to boom forever. Rates are going to remain low forever. Rates will never increase because that was the prevailing paradigm. Crypto growth are kind of universal constants and are changing the world and we're riding that wave. They never imagined that you'd have the Fed lift its cash rate from 0% to 4.75% currently. And if you hold fixed rate bonds that are paying a fixed interest or coupon and interest rates rise, unless you hedge that, the value of the bond will fall uh, if rates rise to make you equivalent. So again, just very simply, imagine you know a six-year bond is paying you 5% interest and then imagine the Fed lifts interest rates to 10%. For the bond to make you uh, or to give you an equivalent yield, the bond price has to fall because it's only paying 5% interest and it'll fall until, the bond price will fall until you're earning a 10% yield. Now, that's a huge risk. And as it turned out, that roughly speaking on Silicon Valley's 100 billion to 120 billion of bonds, because they didn't hedge their interest rate risk on my numbers, they lost 10 to 15% of the value of those bonds because we had the biggest move in interest rates on a relative basis 
basically ever. Um, and certainly fixed rate bonds suffered in the US last year, their biggest losses in about 100 years. And uh, according to Zero Hedge, the total unrealized losses on Silicon Valley's balance sheet was about 15 to 16 billion. And they only had 15 to 16 billion of equity. Um, now, where it gets even more complex is normally if you hold bonds on a bank's balance sheet and they've lost money because you haven't hedged them, you either have to report that through your profit and loss or you report that through something called your equity capital level. So you reduce your capital to say, hey, we've lost money on our bonds, we have less capital. That's what Aussie banks do and, and that's what big banks do. Silicon Valley Bank had lobbied the Trump administration to exempt them from these rules and some other liquidity rules, and they were exempted. So not only do they have circa $16 billion of losses on bonds because they hadn't chosen to hedge, which is super unusual for a bank, but they also weren't reporting those losses. And so what happened was when the deposit outflow started to accelerate, they had to sell $20 billion of bonds to meet the deposit outflows. And they turned around and said, we've got $1.8 billion of unrealized losses that we've just realized because we've sold these bonds. And they went to the market and said, we need to raise $2.25 billion of equity to cover those losses. And the market was like, we didn't know you had these losses. You didn't report them. Mm. Well, why weren't you hedging your rates risk? And then if you extrapolate out and you know, the market said, well, if all the deposits disappear, then you have to sell all your bonds and you have no equity left. So therefore you'll be insolvent. Now, the key point to understand is this was all triggered by a deposit run. So basically, you know, there's the two smart by half billionaires in Silicon Valley sort of said, oh man, we better pull our money out. So Peter Thiel was like, get your money out. But if the US government had turned around and done one week earlier, what they eventually did, which was to say, all Silicon Valley deposits are gonna be government guaranteed, irrespective of size, then there never would have been a deposit run and no one would have pulled their money because it was 100% guaranteed and Silicon Valley Bank wouldn't have died. So the, the consequence of this to understand you know, the ramifications is US banks have actually become safer because the government has been forced to guarantee all their deposits. And the corollary is that you will, it'll be very, very hard to ever have a US bank run again because depositors are going to know, hey, President Biden told me my deposits are 100% guaranteed. So I'm just going to chase the highest interest rates. Um, it also means U.S. bank bonds are safer because the main way banks die is through deposit runs. So if you can't have deposit runs, then it's very hard to have bond defaults. And interestingly, um, in the case of Credit Suisse, just to kind of extend from SVB, uh, bondholders lost, lost nothing. So the equity was 90% wiped out. The equity hybrids were completely wiped out. But the subordinated bonds, uh, senior unsecured bonds and super senior bonds didn't lose anything. And obviously depositors were also made good. Mm. So that, that's my summary of SVB. Nice. Well, we'll definitely include a link to your article on Livewire where you sort of spell out everything that you just spoke about for, for those listeners that are interested. We'll put that in the show notes. But Chris, you've You've made some pretty big contrarian calls in the past and been right on them. So we're really interested to get your view on perhaps what happens next. Is there a contrarian call to what happens post SVB? Is it shedding a light on a bigger issue at play here? Our central thesis is, and I don't think this is particularly contrarian because it's playing out right now. It was definitely contrarian in late 21. Our central thesis is really as follows. This is the way we see the world playing out. <laughs> We think inflation is going to be persistently problematic. The bond market is assuming, and financial markets and therefore equities, which is obviously your, your wheelhouse, yep. everyone is assuming that inflation straight lines down to 
the central bank targets, which is generally 2%, right? So inflation rates globally, core inflation rates globally are somewhere between circa, you know, five and say circa seven and a half percent. And we're kind of, there's a lot of hopium that we will linearly kind of converge back to the central bank targets at 2% because the bond market is basically saying the hiking cycle is all but over. All the central banks are about to pause, which I think they will. And then they're going to start cutting rates. And the only way they'd start cutting rates is if inflation is under control. The central bankers are preternaturally hawkish right now, uh, partly because there's no political resistance. In the past, politicians have tried to politicise central banks. They've tried to jawbone them. We saw this with Trump. We've seen it with many politicians to get them to do what the polities want them to do. But when inflation became a cost of living crisis, it also became a political crisis. And, you know, these intrinsically myopic politicians want to blame someone else. So they shift the crosshairs to the central bankers, right? Now, the central bankers have been drinking, you know, their inflation-fighting Kool-Aid for the entirety of their career. And the only thing, the only job they really have is to keep inflation at 2%. And inflation has gone to the highest levels in 40 years. And the central bankers are correctly concerned about their own credibility. All their research shows that if you're non-credible, then inflation can kind of explode out of control. So they're actually really motivated. This is important to understand. Now, you, you equity junkies, <laughs> you, you stock jockeys, uh, possibly you guys, early last year, everyone was saying to me, oh, when, when's the Fed going to bail us out? You know, you know surely the Fed, like, how far, does, how far does the S&P 500 have to fall? And the crypto guys were on the sort of same meme, right? They're like, oh, sure, surely the Fed's going to bail out Bitcoin. They can't let Bitcoin collapse. I'm like, I argued in January 22 that the power put option is dead. And that's absolutely been kind of demonstrated over and over again. The only thing that has given the central banks the willies, which it absolutely has, is the spectre of what we face right now, which is a bit of an existential banking crisis. Now, I I don't think there is going to be an existential banking crisis because it's resolved. The crisis of confidence is resolved by government guarantees, and that's what we're seeing playing out. The central banks are really motivated to crush inflation, and they're really, really focused on doing everything humanly possible to make sure inflation converges, and I need to emphasize these words, with certainty to 2%. Mm. And they absolutely do not mind pushing economies into recession. They don't want the banking system to blow up, to blow up because if obviously you have um, a situation where people are not willing to put their money in bank deposits, then banks can't create loans. And if you can't convert savings into loans, you don't have an economy. Mm. That is kind of an absolutely first-order problem that they want to avoid, which is why they've acted with such you know, force and ferocity. Even I've been really surprised by how emphatic and implacable they've been in terms of providing these government guarantees and, and ensuring banks are bailed out. Basically, the risk here uh, that we're worried about, and here's the kind of contrarian view, is that you see core inflation bob around mm three to, say, 5%. So you don't get a straight line mean reversion back to 2%. Uh, and we don't have strong conviction that this will necessarily materialise. We're just saying, in my view, is it's probably 50-50 and it's a very significant risk. And if we see persistently problematic inflation and if it doesn't normalise straight down to 2%, what does that mean for markets? It means that the central bankers are not going to cut rates at all. Rates are going to remain high for a very long time. Most of them are actually not forecasting that they'll cut rates till 2025, right? And it means that, and here's the scary part, there is a risk that we get a second hiking cycle, which is not priced into bond markets or equity markets. If inflation sort of bobs around 3 to 4 to 5%, 
anything above three, we really risk getting a second hiking cycle. And one of the problems that the central bankers have faced is there was so much fiscal stimulus. Governments threw so much money at households and businesses during the pandemic that we did build up a lot of cash, these big cash buffers. Yes, if you look at the household savings rate, you know, a lot of people have noted that the household savings rate jumped to record levels, like 23% here in Australia, but it's kind of back down to normal. But that's just the the marginal uh, flow of savings into, you know, say, bank accounts. We still have kind of squirreled away these big cash buffers, and a lot of people are still spending like it's 1999. What that means is that households may be more resilient to rate hikes than they have been in the past, and it may mean that central bankers need to raise rates further than they might otherwise. So I remain very negative on the economic outlook. I remain very negative on equities uh, and any risk asset classes, and I remain particularly uh, negative on illiquidity. So let me just kind of expand on that. We think the US is going to go into recession. All of our modelling implies the US is going to recession. We think Europe's going to recession. We think there's going to be a global recession. We think stocks have priced in, um, and this is the good news for you stock jockeys, uh, (laughs) stocks have priced in in the increase in interest rates. So we think, yeah, the stocks have got the the discount rate story, which is the interest rate story, but we do not think that stocks are pricing in uh, an earnings recession. And we think on a cyclically adjusted basis, uh, share valuations in the US uh, or uh, cyclically adjusted price earnings multiples still look way too high. Uh, in December 21, I argued that US equities would fall at least 30%. S&P fell 26, NASDAQ fell 36. Um, but our range is actually 30 to 60. And I think you could see uh, no returns or very poor returns from stocks for a protracted period, like years. Um, because we're going to have, in our view, recessions. And then crucially, we're going to have a big default cycle, which we haven't really seen in Australia since 1991. We haven't seen the US since arguably 2008 or 2002. And the thing to understand, this is a second big idea. I've actually got a few big ideas I want to share with you guys. So the second big idea is you need to understand that for 30 years we've had declining interest rates. And we've had particularly sharp declines in interest rates since 2008 when they went to zero. And what that has bred is entire industry sectors that were predicated on the assumption that rates would remain low for long, that were conditioning their businesses on the perpetual availability of cheap money. You know, my peers at PIMCO, one of the world's biggest bond managers, coined this term the new normal, and that was this low rates for long paradigm. I set up Coolabar. We run $12 billion in assets. I have 35 staff. We're very active bond traders. So last year, we traded $86 billion in bonds. But I set up Coolabar on the basis that we wanted to run floating rate strategies that um, that don't have interest rate risk. And this was in 2011 because I thought that this, the, the, the policy-making impulse of always cutting rates to zero and printing money endlessly to bid up the value of all assets, my view was that that would ultimately propagate a big inflation cycle where fixed-rate bonds would perform very poorly and other asset classes would get smashed and floating-rate uh, assets would put, well, floating-rate cash and floating-rate bonds would perform best. So in FY22, the best-performing asset class on the ca- uh, planet was cash. And after cash, it was probably floating rate uh, liquid credit, um, if you ignore the illiquid stuff. So I think we're going to have a big default cycle, and that default cycle is going to wipe out these companies uh, and asset classes that were uh, conditioning themselves on the low rates for a long idea. And when we look at the proportion of listed firms, 
So companies on the stock markets in the US, UK, Australia and Europe, and we look at the proportion of companies using FY21 financial data that did not produce sufficient profits just to pay the interest, forget the principal, just the interest on their debts. 10 years ago, it was about 5% of all firms. As at FY21, it was about 10 to 15% of all firms. Wow. And that was before the rate hikes. If we kind of marked it to market to today with the rate hikes, it'd be a much larger number. So those zombie businesses... You know, the fintechs, the startups, the crypto um, companies, but all, anything that was kind of growthy, all of those are probably going to die. And that's going to increase unemployment, which is exactly what you've got to understand is the central bankers want to kill businesses. They are actually explicitly targeting what, what they call demand destruction, which means kill businesses. They explicitly want the jobless rate to rise. They explicitly want wages to fall, and they're hoping that that reduces inflation. So big idea number one is we're going to have a multi-year default cycle. A lot of the businesses that we've become accustomed to seeing are not going to exist, um, and the world is going to have to fundamentally rewire itself to be able to survive in a high interest, higher interest rate climate. A second big idea, guys, that I want to ventilate quickly is that um, don't expect a big rebound in asset prices. So if... The secular decline in interest rates for 30 years pushed up asset prices aggressively. Then the secular normalization in interest rates back up higher will have to push down asset prices permanently. And that's what's happening here. Like as our borrowing capacity changes, asset prices have to adjust. So in the case of housing, roughly speaking, every percentage point increase in the RBA cash rate or mortgage rates that reduces our purchasing power by about 10 to 15%. So if the RBA lifts its cash rate by 300 basis points, uh, all things being equal, if you assume no wages growth, you assume no uh, supply side restrictions, house prices should fall about 30%, right? Um, you know, we argued, as you guys said, in October 2021, I think you mentioned this, uh, that we thought Aussie house prices would fall 15 to 25% uh, after the RBA started raising rates. Thus far, Aussie house prices have fallen 10%, Sydney house prices have fallen 14%. Interestingly, it looks like there's a, a little bit of kind of bottoming out in the housing market. Whether that sustains is an open question. We, we're sticking to our forecast, so we'll see what transpires. But don't expect, guys, <clears throat> that you're going to get the massive asset price booms that we got in the past. Those asset price booms in the past were a function of the central banks cutting interest rates to zero and printing money to buy everything. They are not going to do that this time around. And one anecdote, a mate of mine, uh, this model, uh, God love him, uh, who inherited 100 million bucks from his property development dad, comes to me and says, oh, Chris, I made, um, you know, what should I do with this 100 million bucks? And I'm like, uh, put it in cash. He goes, yeah, that's a great idea because, you know, basically I'll put it in cash, commercial property is going to fall 25% and I'll pick up those assets and make you know, more than 30%. And I'm like, well, how do you make 30%? He goes, well, when prices kind of go back to normal. And I'm like, mate, they're never going back to normal. If interest rates remain structurally high, those prices need to remain structurally low. So the, the outlook for asset prices once we get through this default cycle and once interest rates do uh, eventually decline a little bit um, is that asset prices will probably track income growth, so GDP growth and wage growth and changes in purchasing power. Uh, the other point to note here is... In contrast to past cycles, central banks are going to be incredibly nervous about cutting rates. And that's because they don't know where the so-called neutral cash rate or normal cash rate lies. It's an unobservable. And they're going to be uh, really, really anxious about reigniting inflation pressures. So I see rates remaining high for a long time. I think the, the central banks, barring a complete sort of GFC 
uh, and you know financial system collapse. So setting aside that scenario, the central banks, whenever they do come to cut rates, the rate cuts I think are going to be quite shallow because they're going to be um, experimenting with where the normal rate is, uh, and they're going to be very very keen to uh, ensure that inflation does stay low for long. Mm. A lot to uh, a lot to consider there, Chris. Um, we're keen to unpack the housing side of things, uh, so we're going to take a short break and on the other side, uh, really dig into that. So we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So welcome back. We're here with Chris Joy, co-founder of Cooler Bar Capital, and we are about to jump into the housing market. Chris, October 2021, as you mentioned, you forecast a peak to trough correction of between 15 to 25%, and uh, that's certainly playing out. Although I must say, Chris, I am in the market for a house at the moment, and I'm not feeling the 25% price drop. <laughs> it seems like everything is going above what's being listed at the moment, so there's still demand out there, but... Uh, anyway, nonetheless, um, we're, we're really keen to just get your thoughts. If you're able to kind of summarise where the Australian housing market is currently at um, to begin with and then where you kind of see this the, the market over the next sort of 12 months um, in light of RBA commentary and, and also your forecast back in October 2021. I, I know we've asked you a lot of questions, Chris, but maybe one more. Any recommendations on where Bryce should buy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I should say that, you know, obviously I can't pervade personal financial advice and past terms is going to get returned. <laughs> so, yeah, had to get that disclaimer in there. Um, so, a few things. Uh, you know, we all of our modelling implies house prices should fall 15 to 25%. As I mentioned, capital city prices are off about 10%. It's almost the biggest decline ever. Uh, Sydney prices are off about 14%. There has been a curious and somewhat surprising mini bounce uh, since February. <clears throat> now, there is a lot of seasonality in housing data. What that means is prices statistically tend to rise over February, March, April, May, because mm-hmm. that's like a, a very strong demand uh, part of the cycle. And the, the little bounce has not been at all sharp. It's kind of like, you know, it looks like a dead cat bounce. Uh, so we're sticking to our 15 to 25% expected total drawdown. Uh, as I mentioned, we're kind of 10 percentage points of the way there. One of the interesting positive dynamics that does give us a little bit of pause is a forecast we made in 2021, in July 21, where uh, we're just coming out of lockdowns. And we argued that after the federal election, um, basically we would see a huge record increase in migration as borders opened up and as um, uh, we got a tsunami of skilled uh, migrants and students flooding back into the country. Now, a lot of people argued that we were wrong. They basically said, no, 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 Australia's locked down to all the cities. We're going to really struggle to convince people to come here. And moreover, you know, unemployment rates globally are at you know, 60-year lows. It's not hard to find a job anywhere, so why would you come to Australia? As it turns out, we have seen you know, the highest migration in 20 years, and unambiguously that's fueling a bit of a bid in housing. Um, anecdotally, we're hearing lots of reports in Sydney and Melbourne of the return of the Chinese bid, which also makes sense. So how that plays out in terms of um, the price discovery process it is an open question, um, but you know the flip side of that coin is we know that 
Um, you know, the RBA has no interest in cutting rates. Um, the RBA probably has one to two hikes left in the system, um, although they look like they're going to pause in April. Um, and those hikes may not materialise. But even if they don't materialise, we also know um, a few important things. We know that uh, one in four Aussie home loans in 2023 switch from their 2% fixed rates to 6% six percent variable rates, uh, and that this is going to be the mother of all shocks for household balance sheets. Uh, according to the RBA's own analysis, last year when the cash rate was 2.7%, they said, what does the world look like for Australian households and borrowers particularly when the cash rate's at, say, 3.6%. It just so happens that's exactly where the cash rate is today. And what they found was that at a 3.6% cash rate, 15% of all Aussie borrowers had negative cash flow. What does that mean? They took their income and they deducted their mortgage repayments and then they deducted their essential living expenses. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about porn star expenses. I'm not talking about discretionary <laughs> spend. They only reduced they, – they only kind of, um, you know, crimped off the – the uh, essential living expenses. So I think that's that's pretty freaking sobering that you know, 15% of all borrowers are at risk of default. We're definitely seeing in our analysis of home loan arrears, we're seeing a sharp pickup in defaults. So you know, how that plays out in terms of the price discovery process for housing is, I think, interesting. My, my own view is that prices will really struggle to appreciate in the next year or two if the RBA maintains its current uh, path uh, for its interest rate profile. We will kind of experience Peter Trough drawdowns of around 15 to 25%. Um, do I think it's an amazing buying opportunity? It, it does look – and this is where I think people are getting kind of head faked. It does look like uh, there are amazing opportunities if you compare prices today – to where they were 12 months ago or 18 months ago. I, I, you know, very clearly, like I was looking at a property in Jeroa, uh, two properties in Jeroa, south of Sydney. These were properties on a beach. One um, was a knockdown and the guy had paid $4.35 million for it. I was the underbidder years ago. Uh, he put it on the market for six plus, then you know, dropped it to uh, 575, then five and a half, then five. Anyway, long story short, today he's thinking of accepting 4-1. Now, that seems like a bargain, but, you know, it may not be a bargain in 12 months' time. Another property a few doors up, which has just been really, uh, you know, very expensively redeveloped, they wanted 8.5 to 9 for it. Um, and then they and they stayed at 8 plus for like 12 months. It ended up selling for 6.5. And, and, you know, that was a brand-new build on the beach, um, you know, the land's probably, I would argue, the land's probably worth three to four. The build would definitely have been, um, you know, four plus. So, you know, potentially that that's, uh, you know, an interesting opportunity. But I do think you need to condition your expectations for um, an ongoing adjustment in uh, valuations in light of uh, this structural increase in interest, interest rates and this structural decline in purchasing power. So my own view is, I wouldn't be rushing to buy property right now. I'd be looking, this is again, I'm not giving anyone personal advice, but uh, I'd be looking myself in the next six to 18 months and you want to make sure that the market is cleared. You want to make sure that all those fixed rate borrowers are on 2% loans that go to 6% who won't be able to afford them uh, and need to sell their homes and that'll be a bit of a supply side response that will probably come in the second half of this year at the same time that market conditions are slowing down. Uh, you're probably going to see more bargains, I think, in the back end of this year and early next year. Uh, I am a big believer in the the wonder down on down under the easy Aussie economy. I think it's one of the most elastic and agile economies on earth, and we have been incredibly successful in dodging crises in the past. You know, we didn't have two quarters of negative GDP growth in 2008. Um, you know, the unemployment rate I think only went to 5.6 or 5.8 percent in 2008. 
Uh, you know, we were one of the best performing economies during the pandemic. Um, and it is definitely the best country in the world to live in. I've spent a lot of time overseas and nothing compares to Australia. If I had to pick an area, uh, Sunshine Coast is unbelievable just in terms of it's incredibly cheap. Uh, the climate's amazing. Uh, you don't have crocodiles or box jellyfish. It's warm all year round. You get a bit of monsoonal rain in December and January. Um, and and within the Sunshine Coast, I'll plug my own uh, long exposure. <laughs> I like I, I like a Phrygian beach, D- uh, dirt cheap. Like you can buy on the beach for a few million bucks. Um, uh, you know, you're 14 minutes from Noosa, 15 minutes from an international airport. Uh, yeah, so Prigium Beach, go out and bid it up. So hopefully I can make some mark-to-market gains on my own property. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get one here first, Chris, but uh, that's on the list. <laughs> so, Chris, one uh, one question I just wanted to ask. Uh, uh, before the break, uh, when you were talking about what uh, equity markets have priced in, and I do love your term stock jockeys. I think uh, that goes well with equity mates, so we might we might have to steal that from you. You mentioned there that there, there's potentially for another tightening cycle to come that the markets haven't priced in. If that does play out, how do you think that affects property? I, that's diabolical. To be clear, I probably didn't express that. No, apologies. I'm cognizant of the fact I do speak quickly um, and yeah, my thoughts do race sometimes. So if any, anyone in the audience is struggling to keep pace or understand, I, I apologize in advance, but, um, or belatedly. Um, so yeah, I think it's a disaster, absolute disaster, but it's not abnormal. We've seen this before, you know, central banks raise rates, they then pause for a while and then they have to do some more hikes. And I, I'd say that's a 50, 50 scenario. Um, like hopefully, you know, I hope we straight line to 2% inflation. I hope these hikes are all we you know, need, but I do think your best performing, you know, and I was, was going to say, this sounds like a plug for my own portfolios, but Back in late 21, I, I was arguing that credit spreads are going to move more than 100 basis points wider in investment-grade credit, which is my asset class, which is terrible for my asset class. Uh, I argued that long-term interest rates on fixed-rate bonds were going to rise hundreds of basis points, which means that fixed-rate bonds were going to get smashed. So we were super negative in our own asset class. In fact, over late 22, sorry, between June 21 and June 22, in total, we put $10 billion of short positions and hedges to work in credit and bonds. So it was super negative. So I'd like to think I come from an authentic perspective. I do think your best performing asset class for the next year or two will be cash. Um, you know, the central banks are trying to calibrate their cash rates such that they get a positive, you as a saver get a positive return above the rate of inflation. And if you think about cash, you know, right now you can probably get four and a half, five percent term deposit rates. So why would you buy resi property on three, four percent yields when you can get four and a half to five percent on cash? Um, you know, on bank bonds, we can, we're getting as much as 6 to 7% on major bank bonds. So again, if CBA bonds are paying you 6 to 7%, why would you buy CBA equities, which right now are paying a fully frank dividend yield of only 6%? And for that matter, again, apologies to the stock jockeys, which is probably 99% of everyone listening to this, <laughs> but why would you buy Aussie equities, which are also paying you with franking credits, uh, grossed up a 6% dividend yield? doesn't make sense. So... You know, commercial property is going to be a disaster. You know, commercial A-grade office property is still trading on yields of you know, four and a half to five and a half percent. Resi property, I think, is is going to be intrinsically problematic. Anything that's a liquid takes time to adjust, like years and years to adjust. You see it in the way that house prices are slowly adjusting. Commercial property is even slower than resi property. Private equity and venture capital completely screwed, right? Because they're going to take again years to adjust. The two sectors that worry me most are the junk bond market or the high yield bond market and the private loan or private credit markets because in 2008, when we had all of these credit blow-ups that hurt banks, 
the regulators came along to the bank and said, okay, you can't extend loans to these zombie borrowers anymore or these risky borrowers. And the two sectors that are um, often uh, replete with the largest relative numbers of zombies are actually real estate and tech. And you know, in Australia, the banking regulator, APRA, has consistently argued that the biggest bank killers are residential development loans, so residential property loans for developers, uh, development purposes, and commercial property exposures. In the last serious recession we had in Australia in 91, ANZ and Westpac almost blew up because of their commercial property expo- exposures. We saw the same thing with commercial property in 2008. And most of this finance or a lot of this finance has shifted off bank balance sheets since 2008. And these borrowers have got finance from non-bank borrowers. And I think the non-bank market is a bit of a disaster waiting to happen. And the, the private loan and high-yield markets are, are really, really problematic. So to be clear to answer your question, if in the 50-50 scenario we get a second hiking cycle, that's not price at all. It's a disaster for freaking everything. And the only thing that will do well is cash and possibly, or, or probably in my view, very highly rated, very liquid uh, liquid um, high-grade bonds, so government bonds and, and high-grade bank bonds. They're, they're probably my three preferred sectors, having been super negative on bonds in late 21. We might have to do a pivot and call ourselves cash mates then. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love uh, it. Yeah, yeah. You need it with that or- uh, something like, you know, equity hedge mates or, uh, or long short mates. <laughs> long short long mates, short that's mates. not bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, equities is – you can what, what, the equity investors need to understand, I, I, I've kind of made this point, but to reiterate it, it's been a bit of a Ponzi scheme for a long time. It's all been on the greater – you know, predicated on the greater full theory that – you know, growth and these tech companies are going to take over the world and they're going to be able to grow at insane rates forever. But the reality is there's going to be no freaking growth, right, for the next few years. The world is not growing. It's going to contract. Um, and equity valuations, I do think listed equities has has adjusted materially, but I still think there are probably big adjustments to come. Um, and, and the other thing is to remember that and I'll, I'll kind of state this slowly, the option to wait is very valuable. There's value in the optionality of just pausing, sitting on the sidelines, capitalizing on the liquidity of cash or high-grade debt or bonds and just watching what plays out because you're not going to miss any rally. Like all these bear market bounces have been absolute BS, right? Every time, you know, the S&P 500 gets up to like, you know, 4,200, 4,300, wherever it was, um, you know, it's been highly probabilistic that you'd see it get smashed back down again. That's exactly what's transpired. I think another thing for equity mates um, and your uh, listeners is this, um, and this is actually my final big idea for the day because I think I've dispensed uh, a sufficient number. It's <laughs> this. It's really actually important to understand. Superannuation Australia was set up in 1992. And, you know, we're now putting 10.5% of all of our income into super. This is a form of forced saving. Uh, and it's served Australia really, really well. But during the 1990s and through to 2008, it was basically in Aussie equities, one big bull market. So the super funds that did well were the super funds that had the highest equity weights. And because we rank super funds on pure returns, not on the volatility of their returns, basically everyone was chasing risk, right? And what that meant was that by 2008, Aussie super funds had the highest equity weights of any pension funds globally in the OECD, much, much abnormally high exposures to equity. And that includes Aussie equities, global equity, property equity, infrastructure equity, private equity, venture equity, et cetera. And they basically had no cash and fixed income to speak of. If you look at Aussie super 2008, it was, I think, 7% or maybe it was 11% total exposure to cash and fixed income. Now that we've moved into a world 
in which interest rates are suddenly much higher and super funds can get 6 to 7% interest rates on, say, bank debt, it creates an incredibly high hurdle for everything else they're investing in. So I do think you're going to see a structural shift in asset allocation within super funds away from equities back into cash and high-grade debt. Um, this is also amplified, and this is slightly complicated, but defined benefit pension funds globally, these are super funds that have to pay out a specific return they've promised to pay. Those guys didn't have enough money to pay out that return for a very long time. For decades, they ran something called a, a funding deficit or a funding gap. And so for decades, they were told by their advisors, you have to be in equities because equities will give you the highest rate of return and high equity returns will help you close the funding gap for defined benefit pension funds. Because of the huge increase in interest rates, most of those defined benefit pension funds have closed that gap and they're now keen to lock in the, the, the so-called surplus they've got by buying long-term high-grade fixed-rate bonds. So I think globally you're going to see a massive shift out of equities, venture capital, profit, private equity, and out of commercial property into bonds because of the high returns on bonds. And I think that's going to be a big structural headwind for Aussie equities in particular. I think the biggest tailwind for Aussie equities in the last 30 years has unambiguously been super. And I think that tailwind could at the margin turn into a bit of a headwind. And that's all I have to say, guys. Love it. Plenty of massive ideas for us to uh, to ponder over there, Chris. But we have uh, run out of time. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your time with us today. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. I do have one question, though, to, to finish. In the process of uh, setting up this interview, I received an email from you at 2.28 a.m. So do you ever sleep? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's a very freaking good question. So let's just say this. I have 35 guys. I have eight traders that work for me. I have six people in London, and the London guys are calling me all day, every day, overnight, because you know we're, we're doing hundreds of millions of dollars of trades in the US dollar and euro time zone. Uh, so that kind of does beg the question, what's the optimal time zone for me to be in? It's probably not Australia long term. But, um, yeah, my sleep patterns – I don't need like um, – consistent sleep. I'm very good at being woken up you know, five times in the night. I've got no problem with that. I probably only need, I mean, optimally about six hours sleep, but if I can get five to five and a half hours of sporadic sleep, I'm fine. Nice. Just like lots of power. Nice. Lots of power nap sport. Yes, wow. that's the, the, the mentality I adopt is kind of that SAS sort of uh, mindset, always sleep with one eye open. <laughs> <laughs> love that love that well <laughs> Chris um, we, do, we do finish all of our uh, interviews with uh, guests with uh, a final question it, by being uh, on the show you automatically go into the running for our expert of the year which is voted by our community at the end of the year they um, uh, vote on which interview they took the most value from and we like to give them a bit of uh, insight into who our guests are beyond their realm of expertise if you were to win where would you put the coveted Equity Mates Expert of the Year trophy? Oh, well, firstly, haven't I already won? <laughs> <laughs> this is a good point. Well, my trophy. <laughs> it's in the mail. <laughs> uh, I'd probably give it to my son. Oh, nice. Nice. Oh, that's that's nice. a good answer. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. good answer. Well, uh, look, Chris, thank you so much. We'll include all of the links to the articles that were referenced throughout this episode on SVB, on housing, on the zombie apocalypse. There's plenty there, so we'll put them all in the show notes. And if you're not following Chris already, jump onto his Twitter feed, follow him on Livewire. Um, incredibly good at keeping keeping us updated with what's going on in markets. So, Chris, uh, appreciate all the work that you do and um, look forward to catching up again in the future. Thanks, boys. I love it. You're champions. 
You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 